Hello, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, episode 310. It's the 31st of August, 2021. I'm Trevor, a.k.a. the Iron Fist, back from a holiday in North Queensland. I'll tell you a little bit about that in a moment. But with me, as always, Shay, the subversive. How are you, Shay? Good evening. I'm very well, thanks. And Paul, the tech guy. Not Paul, I was going to say. And Joe, the tech guy. How are you, Joe? (laughs) Evening all. Right. You're missing and him already. I am. Yeah, I am. I, I miss the contrariness and the arguments. So, well, you're welcome to, to phone in and or come on and make a cameo appearance at any time. All right. If you're in the chat, say hello and, and join us and make some comments and we'll try and get to you. And we'll just run through what's been happening over the last couple of weeks, news and politics, sex and religion. Just briefly, a personal note, I'm back from a holiday. I was up in Cairns and I went to Fitzroy Island and it is a completely different world up there, dear listener. So if you're able to escape lockdown, and just head to North Queensland and go. Like it's great. There's no masks and you're turning the clock back three years to pre-COVID times. It was good. And Fitzroy Island, you can just go there, stay in this resort type area. And walk out onto the beach and snorkel, there's coral, there's turtles, there's all that stuff. It's really, really good. So highly recommend that if you can get away. If you can't get to Paris or New York next year, go to Fitzroy Island. <laughs> all right. So oh, other things, just sort of Noosa Temple of Satan stuff. We'll just, we got a lot of messages from people saying, hey, did you guys see how you went viral on this thing? And there's a really strange thing happened on ABC where on a news report they did a story about some sort of stabbing of dogs and and it showed footage of us by mistake as we exited the court and then as the as the sort of report audio so the audio and the video were mixed up so the audio was about this dog stabbing and the and the video was of us exiting the court on our court day and then the audio sort of finished for the story and then it came to just showing a, a shot of Robin when he was doing his black mass saying, Hail Satan. And then straight from that, it, it goes back to the studio to the newsreader and she's just got this deadpan face where she's just completely nonplussed by what's happened. And then she starts reading her next story without any commentary. And I don't know, I didn't think it was that funny, but people found it hilarious and it went completely viral. There's a guy called Mickey Indigo. He's he's on TikTok and normally his TikTok stuff gets maybe 6,000, 8,000 sort of views and his his little video of us in this instance got 2.7 million views and certainly the ABC version, uh, just hundreds of thousands. It was an amazing viral moment. So, so to all those people who said, "Do you see this?" Uh, yes, we saw it. So, Joe, have you got a theory as to why it went viral? Hail Satan! And anything involving Satan is popular. Anything so on the atheist side, anything that's two fingers up to mainstream religion is popular. And yeah. for the religious, it's a proof that the end times are here that jesus is coming and that evil has taken over it, it feeds into their martyrbation complex yeah it, it apparently the algorithm worked and all these people in this sort of QAnon type thing who, who are worried about satanists this was proof to them that somehow satanic forces were at work and 
that's the reason it went viral was because it 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 tapped into the algorithms for these crazy QAnon people. Mm. So that's one of the theories anyway as to why it went so big. So so yeah, that was uh, so that was interesting. Okay, in the chat room, Watley, Don, John, Chris, good on you, and I think I mentioned Ross. I think I saw Ross in there. So yes. All right, keep making comments. We'll try and get to them if we can. All right. Now, still on sort of news of Temple of Satan stuff, This I saw a post from the Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools where they had stumbled across a uh, school which was the Bundaberg East State School. So on their website they said that they offer religious instruction and they listed the number of faiths that are offering religious instruction at this government school in Bundaberg. 25 of them, 25 different faiths. Did you see this one, Chay or Joe, or only when I sent it to you? I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it it 25 providers or was it 25 religions have signed up to a group provider though? Oh, it was probably done as a group thing. I'm not sure about that. But Ann Street Gospel Chapel, Apostolic Church of Queensland, Bundaberg Baptist Church, Bundaberg Bible Chapel, Bundaberg Catholic Communities, Bundaberg Church of Christ, Bundaberg West Baptist, Christ Church Anglican, City Coast Church, Coral Coast Christian Church, Crofton Street Gospel Hall, Good Shepherd Anglican. It just goes on and on. I wonder, did did any of them have to go to the Supreme Court to prove the common faith of their followers? No? Didn't see them there? Well, because Christianity is given a shoe in, isn't it? Yeah. Free pass. Yeah, exactly. Mind you, Crofton Street Gospel Hall, about the only one that didn't have Christian in the name. Oakwood Community Church. If we had just called ourselves... Uh, Noosa Church of Christ, we would have been straight in. Mm. So it's, it's anyway, they make the, the point, uh, Queensland Pants for Secular State Schools, like some of these groups are outrageous. For example, the Crofton Street Gospel Hall, if you look at their website, they say things like, they've got a question and answer area in their website. Do women speak or contribute to your services? Answer, no, women do not take audible part in our services. We believe the Bible is very clear on this point. And they quote Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. Another question, do the women in your church have their heads covered? Yes, once again, we believe that this is what the Bible teaches and they quote the scripture for that. So they're really hardcore little house on the prairie. <laughs> I don't know. They're just Do they wear mixed fabrics is the question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's the sort who can waltz into our government school system, putting women in their place, and they're worried about Satanists. <laughs> and stoning their unruly children. Yes. So so good on you, Queensland Parents for Secular State School, for, for finding that group. And as they said here, how messed up the RI system is in this state and how selective the concern of the education department is about who gets into our schools It's more worried about the letter of the law and the optics. Can't let in those evil Satanists, but the door is wide open to groups with sexist and backward thinking Mm. if they just call themselves Christians. Very true. Right. Or members of the National Party. Yes. 
Thanks. To keep up with what happens with voluntary sister dying in Queensland, the Health and Environment Committee report came out and basically there were no surprises. The three ALP members supported the proposed bill for voluntary assisted dying in its entirety. There was a dissenting report from the One Nation MP, mm-hmm. Steve Andrews. He played the I'm a Christian card, saying it was reckless, and he also played the I'm a South Sea Islander card, saying there was a lack of consultation with Indigenous Queenslanders. Mm-hmm. And there was a Dr Mark Robinson had a dissenting report that just parroted the position of cherished life. But uh, the deputy, LMP Rob Molhoek, he made a statement of reservation and took a swipe at Labor and quoted Wendy Francis, but there weren't any real objections from him. So maybe the LMP might be getting nervous about the overwhelming public support for voluntary assisted dying. So, mm. so that'll be interesting to see how that pans out. So, so I did see the Catholic response. What did it say? They said that they didn't care what the law was, they weren't going to allow it on their property. Yes. Okay. So that was with the hospitals? Yes. So the Martyr Hospital and Mm. all of the respite care and all of the end-of-life facilities that the Catholic Church, which apparently is 30%, 40% of the state's beds, for aged care. Catholic facilities provide one in five hospitals. Oh, one in five. It's only, tw- only 20%. Yes. Mm. And they want the freedom yes. to run the hospital as they see fit. They, they want the freedom to interfere in your life. Yes, and to ignore the laws of the land that everyone else yes. has to obey because they're special. Yes. Because so, Yeah. So uh, the Catholic hospitals... They say they will defy Queensland's euthanasia law. So the martyr... They're not euthanasia laws. There's no euthanasia involved. Yes, but that's how they describe it. Yeah. So they say they won't be acceding to the laws. We will not tolerate non-credentialed doctors coming on site, nor will we assist in the provision of voluntary assisted dying in any of our facilities, said Francis Sullivan, chair of the martyr group. So it sounds to me like grounds for compulsory purchasing back... I think we could probably yes. take the um, children's hospital back for the amount that the Catholic Church were going to buy it. Wasn't it a dollar? Uh, good point. Like, they take so much of our money to mm. run these things and then they don't want to be part of it. Uh, Basically. It, yeah. It's just it's this whole – it's just like the people with the lockdowns. It's bugger the rest of you. I just want to do what I want and I just don't care. And I deserve government funding to do that. Yeah. Okay. Did Victoria navigate this when they legislated it? They didn't have this section in uh, from memory. Right. So down there they were exempt. So Queensland is the first to really put put the hard word on and try and force the Catholic institutions to comply. So let me just see what says here, Deputy Premier Stephen Miles said, cases where VAD doctors would offer services at faith-run facilities would be very, very rare. It's only those circumstances where it would be unfair, would cause unnecessary suffering to transfer the patient to a provider where those services can be provided. So I think from memory it was if people are in a Catholic hospital and they want to access voluntary-assisted dying the hospital has to assist them in transferring to a hospital that will allow it. I 
think that's the way the law is written. But if for some circumstance it can't be done, then under the law the Catholic system has to offer the service or allow other doctors in to offer the service. Has, has to allow other doctors in. Yeah. So really Stephen Miles is saying it's going to be a pretty rare case where somebody's in such a state that they can't be transferred. So this all comes back to a case in Canada where there was this person who was in enormous pain and had to be taken out of pain relief in order to be uh, competent enough to sign these documents and then had this horrendously painful ambulance journey to another hospital that was like excruciatingly painful. So it does happen where people can't be moved. So, so yeah, Catholics just saying, well, we'll take all of your money, all of your uh, society's stuff, but when there's laws passed that we don't like, we'll just bug you. Opt we'll, out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it was like the mandatory reporting that they refused to do. Yes. Yep. So just in the chat room, John Simmons says, the word euthanasia is derived from the Greek word euthanatos, meaning easy death. Hmm. But the point was euthanasia is where the doctor administers the medicine. Yes. voluntary assisted dying is the doctor prescribes the medicine, but it's the patient who, by their own hand, takes it. Yep. Yep. Although I think the legislation allows for assistance if they're not capable of it. Possible. From memory. Yep, from memory. So, okay, just looking at the chat. Okay. Now, still on some Christian bashing. <laughs> They've given a bit in the last couple of weeks. So Martin Niles, he's come out and said that, so the Australian Christian Lobby believes, says that believers should push for COVID freedom. So he's big on anti-lockdown and pro-freedom and basically says that Christians shouldn't be afraid of dying because ultimately if you're a good Christian, where are you going to go? Which is interesting because I've uh, heard hospital orderlies and nurses who talk about end-of-life care and they said mm. it's the Christians who are deathly afraid. Right. Whereas those without a religion are at ease. Those who are true believers are almost, are almost certain that they're going to hell because <laughs> because it's a vengeful and petty God. Yes. So uh, Richard Dennis in a tweet said something like, well, I'm confused. The so-called pro-life Christians who are anti-voluntary assisted <laughs> dying because you don't want to die early, earlier than necessary. We now prefer people to be able to die because they want to go shopping. Well, I, I think maybe they should prove their faith by doing some snake handling, like yes. like the the ones in the southern US that handle yeah. rattlesnakes to prove that God will protect them. And invariably, one of them gets bitten and dies. Yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, okay, what else in the chat room? So that. Okay, still on the Australian Christian Lobby, and let me share this screen if it comes up, which they put out a full-page ad um, which was, are you safe at work to talk about your faith? Australians of faith have the right to protection. And then they repeat this quote of Scott Morrison when he said, religious freedom is a core pillar of our society and it's not unreasonable. And I think there are many millions of Australians who would like to see that protected and I intend to follow through on that commitment. So this is the Australian Christian Lobby 
putting the hard word on Scott Morrison about passing the religious discrimination bill. And but the whole point is, the whole point is, the question is, are you safe at work to talk about your faith? Well, everybody is, except if you're a non-Christian working in a Christian workplace, <laughs> then you're not safe. Oh, no, no. It's Hang actually, on. Actually, the very people... Sorry, I, go on. I, I, I have an equal opportunity employer. I'm sure if I was to ridicule the um, Young Earth creationists in my yes. office, I would yeah. find myself on the wrong end of an HR complaint. Mm. I'm sure you would. So, so yeah. I'm not free to talk about my faith. Yeah. Or but let's face of. it, in Australia, if somebody's going to be persecuted because of their faith in the workplace, the most likely scenario is that you're a non-Christian working in a Christian school mm. and they found out and they well, put somebody else in there. Like that's the person most likely to be persecuted. Or as the lesbian the other week that they had a difference of opinion as to whether or not you could be a good Christian and have sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. Yes. So just, you know, they're just so shameless, these people. Facts don't matter. I've nearly finished my – I have finished my rant on Christians. Actually, no, I've got one more to go on Brian Houston. But before that um, – just, just before you move on, I just yeah. – I, I love a good rally. Makes me feel yes. useful. And on the 4th of September, there will be a gathering with among Rainbow Labor to stop religious discrimination. So anyway, if there's any Brisbane listeners, I'll be there. Really? I should be there. Yeah. One p.m. On the at of- Brisbane Square. There were suggestions that possibly something else could be done, like a rally with cars where everyone stays in their cars and just proceeds in that way so that there isn't like a, like a car rally. Yes, <laughs> rather than a mass gathering of people. Because, well, we because, could. Because I don't know. Only- it might be cancelled. It might have been cancelled since then. But I think I only received that last week or re- fairly recently. I'll follow it up anyway. The the um, I lockdown think we can never, outdoors. That's we could true. do that. There's no problem. Outdoors yeah. be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm moving in the wrong circle, Shay. Like clearly, I subscribe to everything about religion that's going on in Australia, and I'm a member of the Labor Party. <laughs> and I had no idea that this is going on. Yeah, and you just got it as a gaze. <laughs> yeah, that's and and I'm a good mates with Robin Bristow, <laughs> one of one of Australia's most notorious gay men. Like, notorious well, there you and, go. Well, well, famous, know. infamous. Yeah, oh, infamous. Yeah. So okay, well, I missed that one. So okay, what? So fourth of September, and where Sorry. is it? It's just a march oh, down the street, isn't it? Brisbane Square. Yeah, I appreciate it. Be square. <laughs> yes, 4th of September. Stop religious discrimination. Okay, I'll, I will try and get to that. Unfortunately, one of the I'd rather you didn't for the Church of the yes. Flying Spaghetti Monster is not about or is about not proselytizing. So I'll be, yes. un- I'll be unable to proselytize to the Christians at work once this religious freedom bill comes through. Yes, okay. So they're non-proselytizers, the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Yes. Pardon kind of like the Jews. Know. What does that mean? Uh, uh, it means that they don't convert. try and convert people. Yeah. Ah. To, to proselytize is to try and convert. So right. uh, school chaplains, for example, 
who must be religious to have the job are not allowed to proselytise, meaning they're not allowed to try and sell their religion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And finally, yes, finally on a bit of religious bashing, Ryan Houston has been charged. So head of the Hillsong Church and New South Wales Police have charged him. Now, be careful, everybody, with defamation laws here. <laughs> Maybe remain silent if you don't know for sure. But I'm just reading from what I've got from Crikey here. So he's been charged in relation to how he handled the case of Brett Sengstock, who as a little boy was sexually abused by Frank Houston, the pioneering figure of what would become Hillsong in Australia. So Brian Houston's dad, Frank Houston, he's dead. So you can say what you like about Frank Houston, you'll be okay. And he was a pedophile and it was all about the delay in Brian Houston notifying the authorities of what his father was up to. So Which he admitted to, to in the Royal Commission. Yes. So he admitted to a delay, to knowing it. So the criminal charge relates to events from two decades ago when Houston failed to notify police when he allegedly became aware that his father had sexually abused a young boy. So this all comes under Section 316A of the New South Wales Crime Act and the elements of it are... The accused person knows, believes, or reasonably ought to know that a child abuse offence has been committed and they know, believe, or reasonably ought to know they have information that might be of material assistance in securing the apprehension of the offender or prosecution and they fail without reasonable excuse to bring that information to the attention of the police as soon as practicable. So the question will be, what would be reasonable excuse to not bring the information forward to the police about your father abusing a boy? And there's a list of available reasonable excuses. It includes things where the accused reasonably believes that the police already know about it or where the alleged victim is an adult at that time that the accused finds out about the offence and the accused reasonably believes that the alleged victim doesn't want the police to be told. So, and the accused can also try for a reasonable excuse not in the list. So there are other things. So anyway, it's going to come down to what was his reasons for not giving uh, notice to the police. And a bit of symmetry going on here. We've got Ryan Houston, big pal of Scott Morrison on on a charge related and to child abuse. pal of the former police commissioner of New South Wales. Yes. And not so long ago we had Cardinal Pell, big mm. pal of the then, of of Prime Minister, of, well, was he then Prime Minister? No, I think Tony Abbott. Yeah. Uh, Tony really Abbott. Was he yeah. Prime Minister at the time when the charges? In any event, high-profile sort of paedophile-related cases, not that... Brian Houston's charged with pedophilia, but concealment, yes. So, of course, Brian Houston's main claim to fame is that Scott Morrison invited him to the White House as part of a group that were going to the White House. Do you remember that, Shay? Yes, I do. Yes. And, and you know, it's a real badge of honour for Brian Houston that he, he was his character is such that even the Trump White House said, we better not have this guy here. <laughs> we knocked him back. How bad have you got to be? Right. Well, it just wouldn't be 2021 if we didn't talk about COVID. Strap yourselves in, <laughs> dear listener. 
know, you might be a little bit tired of it, but uh, some interesting um, stuff has come out. Uh, the essential report came out today. So, so I've got some stuff here, which is how would you rate your state government's response to the COVID-19 outbreak? And probably no surprise that when it comes to rating your state as a good response, in New South Wales, 40%, Victoria, 44%. Meanwhile, Queensland, 67 South Australia, 76 and Western Australia, 78 So there's going to be a common theme in these opinion polls where New South Wales and Victoria are pretty bad in terms of what people are thinking of them. So, so yeah, how would you rate your state government's response, New South Wales and Victoria? People in Victoria are really angry, the ones I talk to anecdotally. Um, what else have I got here? The next one is... But lockdowns don't work. Yeah, and basically, you know, it wasn't that long ago... 7th of June that New South Wales was at 69% and now it's down to 40%. So it was second top at one stage down to the bottom in terms of approval by the public of their response. Here's an interesting one is thinking about the latest COVID lockdown in your area, do you think the restrictions are too strong, about right, too weak? And this was only in places where there actually had been a lockdown. And Essentially, for thinking it was too strong, the New South Wales 28%, Victoria 35%, Queensland 20, South Australia 12, Western Australia 30. So, and in the about right states, it was New South Wales and Victoria performing the worst. And let me just see if I've got, I think people are getting to the point where they're starting to lose patience with the lockdowns in Victoria, especially. And this is the one that I really want to get to, and that is, what do you think about this, dear listener? What do you think is an acceptable number of deaths to deal with per year from COVID? So there's a lot of talk happening at the moment about when do we open up our economy? When do we stop with the lockdowns? At what percentage vaccination rate do we decide? That's it. We're really going to avoid lockdowns unless there's something quite extraordinary happening. And we know there are going to be some infections and we know there's going to be some deaths and we just have to live with some. And so the question is, what, what's the number per deaths per year that for the, for the whole of Australia that you would consider acceptable number for us to sort of stop this lockdown situation. Shay, did you have an, a number in your mind that you would have thought was was reasonable for Australia in terms of number of deaths that you would have thought, ah, a 1,000 a year, fair enough, that's if, if or 2,000 or 100, like did you have a number in mind? I I. Probably haven't really considered the consequences of people dying, but both my mum mm-hmm. and my younger sister are nurses. Yep. So I just sort of consider it from how many beds we have and yep. we're like, yeah, I don't have a number, yep. but that's all I think about. Okay. I think about the, the risk to my younger sister who's already puts herself at risk in a general medical ward all the time is frequently, mm. you know, pushed already. That's what I think about is the number of yeah. beds in hospitals. The, the hospitalisation rate. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Joe, did you have a, a number in your head if they said, well, when vaccinations reach 
80% of the adult population, and we calculate that that will mean a thousand deaths a year, and we decide we're going to open up. Does 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 a thousand sound like an okay number to you? Is there a number that in your head that you think well, is so, okay? So flu is, I believe, around 1,500 a year. Yes. So if it was around 1,500, it would be equivalent to to, to flu. The question is, if we're adding that on top of flu, we've now doubled the death rate a year. And also, I don't know that flu has the ongoing complications. So... But is it measuring it against the flu a valid proposition anyway like but it, it's considerably we, contagious but they're talking about it becoming endemic and yep. us having covid seasons like we have flu seasons yes so if it was an equivalent mm, uh problem that flu is we've lived with flu for a long time now obviously yep. with all the lockdowns we've had we've had no flu we've had absolutely you know record low numbers of flu cases so and they think that the bounce back is that we're going to have a bad flu season when we do open up Mm. but if we had a similar number of people in total i think dying of flu and covid i think that's a relatively valid call Mm -hmm. The, the question is you know in terms of not mortality but morbidity if we have people with long-term disabilities because of COVID, then maybe the answer is the same as with measles, where we are aiming for zero. Mm. And just because the current vaccination isn't great doesn't mean that the next generation won't be. If, for example, they were saying, look, at 80%, we could stop lockdowns pretty much, except in quite extraordinary circumstances, And we know, for example, 2,000 people are going to die. But if we waited another year and got up to 90%, then we would know that basically zero would die, for example, just as a hypothetical. So I'm just trying to paint it in a hypothetical situation. I sort of think we've reached the point where we're prepared to spend or to cop a couple of thousand lives i reckon in order to to get the whole of australia back to if it if if it got australia back to normal i would i would have thought the figure would be around a couple of thousand i I don't think we're ever going to get back to normal there's talk about masks being a long-term thing yes yes but but in sense of lockdowns stopping and businesses being able to open pretty much all the time now there might be well, I think international you know, travel is probably the big mm, one. Mm. So anyway, mm. the Essential Report did a survey and they said, how many deaths nationally from COVID-19 do you think is acceptable to live with in Australia as lockdown restrictions are removed? And they had less than 100, between 100 and 1,000, between 1,000 and 3,000, between 3,000 and 5,000, and more than 5,000 deaths per year. And the biggest one by a long way was less than 100 per year, which was 61% of respondents. The next was uh, between 100 and 1,000 deaths per year. That was going to be acceptable to 25% of the respondents. And then between 1,000 and 3,000 deaths per year is probably where I am, and I'm in a mere 10% of the population on that one. So 
I was quite shocked that the current thinking was that lockdowns can't end if there's a risk of more than 100 deaths per year. That seems a very low number to me. I, I don't know that I'm it's surprised achievable. by that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it is either. I mean, what's – yeah, I – that to me was an unrealistic figure to think that we're if, as the acceptable figure. It was way too low, I think. In the chat room, what do you think? What was your – in your chat room, could you let me know what you think uh, in your head you would have thought as the acceptable annual death rate from COVID to live with in Australia as lockdown restrictions are removed? So, yeah, that shocked me. And just on that figure, so 61% went for 100 deaths or less per year. In terms of females, 70% of females thought that, 52% of males. So females more likely to be quite conservative. So so Watley, the wizard, says it may not be a realistic figure, but I think it demonstrates how many people are inherently decent. Mm. I'm feeling like I'm not decent with that one, Watley, because I, <laughs> I just... It's all the way up, like it's... there's Because there is a weighing up This of... You know, the lockdowns do have an emotional cost and they're, I mean, yes, it's, uh, yeah. The other question is when we tout these figures of, yeah, 70 or 80%, mm-hmm. is that of the total population or is uh, that yes. of the adults? I, I don't know. Well, exactly. I guess people don't really think of kids dying from it, do they? It no. doesn't matter. Mm. If kids mm. are unvaccinated, then it will spread through the kids. And yeah. if you're yeah. 80% of adults, that's oh, only... Sixty percent of the total population. Yeah, correct. So I think this would have been talking about people sixteen years plus. I think so. Time to move on to some modelling, and let me just quickly see where we are on that one. So I'll get rid of that stuff from the screen, so we all look a bit bigger. Right. So what do we have here? It's going to be the pandemic of the unvaccinated. Essentially, is what is becoming obvious. So. Now, this article might be a week old or something, but at that point, current numbers from New South Wales show of the 66 people in ICU, 59 are not vaccinated, seven have had one dose. No one currently in ICU or requiring ventilation has been fully vaccinated. So that was in Sydney probably about a week ago by the age of that article. I'm not exactly sure. I believe 98% in the States. Mm. Yeah. of critical care patients or deaths are unvaccinated. Yep. So it's going to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated. In Iceland, they've got 93% of the population, 16 years or older, vaccinated. They're getting 2,783 cases over the past 30 days. But they've had no deaths in the past 30 days from COVID because of that high vaccination rate. So what we need to do is a quick recap on our national plan. So this was about phase A, B, C, and D. I say phases on stun. Does do people Hang understand on. that? Which yeah. particular plan was it? The plan is to get <laughs> Scott Morrison re-elected. That yes. is the plan. That seems to be the plan. Yeah. So there was phase A, phase B, phase C, and phase D. So phase A was pretty much where we are at the moment. Phase B was supposedly seventy percent vaccination where lockdowns would be less likely and some of the special rules would be easing restrictions on vaccinated residents. So maybe vaccinated people 
would have a bit more freedom to oh, go no, to rock concerts or something play like that. Play in the park. Passports. Oh, no, you yeah. can't do that. Yeah. So that was phase B, 70% vaccination, lockdowns less likely, maybe some special deals if you're vaccinated. In phase C, that was 80% vaccination. Now, this is sort of 16 years and older. And what that was looking at was highly targeted lockdowns only and looking at potentially exempting vaccinated residents from all domestic restrictions. So, so pretty much that was phase C. Phase D was basically going to be only quarantine for high-risk inbound travellers. So the sort of 70% lockdowns less likely, 80% highly targeted lockdowns only. And so there was a report called the Doherty Report, which has come out, and it was asked to define a target level of vaccine coverage for transmission for transmission from to phase B of the national plan, where lockdowns would be less likely but possible. So so the Doherty report is what's being talked about a fair bit lately, and I'm just going to put up on the screen now uh, a bit of luck what the Doherty report summary is for those in the chat room. So if the vaccination rate for 16 years and older was 70%, that would mean of the total population it's 56%. And... They thought that if there was effective what they called testing, tracing, isolation and quarantine, that would still have to go on. The deaths might be 1,520 at 70% and at 80% the deaths might be 980 per year. So that's what the Doherty report kind of came up with in a nutshell. The problem was the Doherty report seemed to be premised on us starting with not many cases, which meant that the testing and tracing and the isolation and the quarantine would be quite effective because there wouldn't be that many people sick so that the testing and tracing authorities could actually do the job effectively. And now that New South Wales is getting continually out of control, that scenario doesn't really apply. So they've basically gone back to the Doherty Institute and said, redo the figures. Instead of a starting point of 30 people infected, you're going to have to start with thousands and try and tell us what the figure is then. So so that's the Doherty report and it's the problem with models. Like we've talked about in the past, Anyone who has faith in a model has never been involved in the making of a model. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I was listening to an epidemiologist talking and he said all models are wrong, some models are useful. Yes. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I've been looking at this Doherty model and the Grattan Institute did a model as well. And and I think the uh, so the Delta variant, it's, it's sort of our number. This is the number of people that an infected person will infect. So it's somewhere around the five, six, seven sort of mark in terms mm -hmm. of the number of people that, that the, the, the R number is. And you can reduce that R number with effective tracing and isolation and quarantine. And so a mask. That, 
Yes, exactly. So so they pulled out some numbers. I'll put this on the screen as well, bit of luck. And they put a number of scenarios where there was 50%, 70%, 75%, and 80% vaccination coverage. And then they assumed an R number of four, five, or six in terms of how, how easily it spread. And running the numbers, you get a huge variation depending on this. So, for example, I'll just take one, which is the 75% vaccination coverage. And the peak daily cases would be 73,000. The peak ICU use would be 8,000. And the COVID deaths per year would be 7,500. But if the R number, instead of being six, was five, then instead of 7,500 deaths, it's 320. Mm. So these, this sort of exponential growth of the delta variation, when, you, when you're talking exponential growth, the slightest change in this R number makes a huge difference. Again, at the 80% vaccination coverage, actually, sorry, I haven't got that on the screen. Hang on. You have that up. Just, just as a aside, I've just looked, mm. measles has an R0 of 16 to 18. Right. Highly infectious. But it is incredibly yeah. infectious. Yeah. So... Back to this Grattan Institute modelling, their scenario at 80% vaccination coverage, if the effective R number is six, there's going to be 2,250 deaths. But if the R number is five, then it's going to be 10. So model schmodels, like honestly, you cannot look at these models if you see them with any confidence at all because you have no idea how effective any of these sort of restrictions will be on this R number. Have you seen the, there's a scientific body in the UK, I think called Sabre, who advise the government and their job is to do effectively worst case scenarios for the government to be able to prepare. And they have said that if COVID mutates like MERS was, Mm. that had a 33% or 30% death rate. Right. So that doesn't happen. Mm. Yes. Effectively, they're saying one of the possibilities is that COVID could mutate and become more deadly. Mm. And and in that case, if you're having, you know, a thousand cases a day, a thousand infections a day, 300 of those will die. Mm. Let's hope we don't get anywhere near that. Yeah. But this, I just found this one from the Grattan Institute, really interesting, just the same group, they're running the models and just the one change if instead of infecting six people on average, you infect five on average, then the deaths go from 7,500 down to 320. I just found it quite extraordinary how that worked. And so if you see models and when the Doherty report comes out with theirs, it's really going to be a, it's a guessing game. And I think we're just going to reach the point where they'll try things for a bit I'll try unrestricted when we get to 80%. Mm. And if it gets out of control and deaths seem to start gathering up quicker than they modelled that they would, then we'll be back to restrictions. You just, yeah. A real life experiment is really what will be done. You can, 
you can have a model to give you some idea of what might happen, but gee, you wouldn't put a lot of faith in it, would you? So, no. yeah. I mean, there's so, so much well, I've been able to predict. You can see, like, from the public figures, the chief health officers, we haven't come across hmm. this. So we can do yeah. our best to predict and hypothesize, but yeah. We, can't uh, we, we, we can. So, so there are very simple steps to reduce the R0 and wearing a mask. Honestly, if the two of you are, so if the infected person and the non-infected person wears a mask, suddenly the R0 drops by, even if it's only two, if it drops from yeah. six to four, it makes mm-hmm. a huge difference. And people go, oh, you know, a mask doesn't stop the virus. If it stops 90% of the load coming out of your body. Yep. Yeah. Uh, that's enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the same with, you know, people are talking about the the air that we accept to breathe. We wouldn't accept drinking water of that quality. And so I think there is going to become a lot more focus on fresh air in public spaces. This idea wow. of recycling mm-hmm. air through the air conditioning system over and over and over, there is probably going to be a complete rethink of public spaces, public buildings. And mm. somewhere in Europe, I think Belgium, has now enforced air quality monitoring, basically monitoring carbon dioxide levels as a proxy of how much fresh air there is because obviously we breathe out carbon dioxide. And so the more people you get into a space, the more carbon dioxide you breathe out. And they have set thresholds that effectively, once you reach one threshold, you, I think you need to get fresh air in. Above a certain threshold, the, the building is shut down. Mm. And this yep. is all about reducing transmissibility. Mm. And My. can you tell me, Joe, has anybody else built quarantine facilities, any other countries? With uh, that, that in I'm mind. aware of. Yeah. And so okay. that uh, podcast was talking about how hotel quarantine was the worst thing we could have done, mm. shutting everyone in these rooms with shared air conditioning. <laughs> and, yes. and, and how if we just use motels instead or like the Northern Territory camp yes. where everyone was in separate dongers, it, it basically it almost certainly wouldn't have broken out of quarantine. Mm. Yep. Yeah. So what was I going to say on that? Uh, so anyway, when you see a model come out, when the Doty report comes out, take it all with a grain of salt. And yeah, definitely the mask wearing is going to be with us for a long time for that very reason. It's a big effect on that R number. And when we get to the vaccination levels of 75, 80, 85%, uh, shifting that R number down just one or two notches is just going to mean the difference between thousands of people dying and potentially a handful. Amazing. Hmm. There you are. If you get nothing else from this episode, dear listener, go for that one. Now, Does does anyone else talking of masks get frustrated with people who wear them around their chin? You you go to the shopping centre and it's it's Mm. under their nose because apparently they don't Mm. breathe out of their nose. Yes. Mm. Why? Yeah. Oh, I know what I was going to say. My friends from Victoria who came up to, well, they went up to Cairns a few months ago when they were able to for the most recent lockdown, and they just made the point that there's so much more outdoor dining in Queensland and compared to Victoria and even just shops. Like we often have the door is open to a shop, like it's a big wide entrance that's never sort of closed, whereas but there is in an air Victoria, curtain. yes. But in Victoria it's a much more confined 
areas not nearly as outdoorsy as we are with our lifestyle in Queensland. That's to the, why we've been lucky. Mm. It would be interesting to see what effect, because obviously with air conditioning, you don't want to lose your cold air inside the building. And so mm. they blast air down vertically across the doorway to stop mm. the cold air escaping. And whether yes. that would stop the fresh air mixing and whether that would be the same as a closed door, I don't know. Mm. Yeah. But my little island retreat that I was just on, we ate out every night and every breakfast, but it was always outdoors on a patio area and everybody mm. else was as well. It was, yeah, same. Couldn't do it in Victoria. Okay. I have not thanked the patrons in a long, long time. Dear listener, I need to do it, so bear with me for a couple of minutes. There are quite a few expenses in running this podcast. So there's the website, uh, there's a hosting of the audio file, there's this fantastic restream chat service live streaming thing that we're using. I'm using Descript to take the ums and ers out and... I've got subscriptions to The Guardian, Crikey, The Australian, Sydney Morning Herald, Courier Mail, New York Times. All that stuff adds up maybe about roughly $80 per episode it costs. So when I'm gathering about $120 per episode, that leaves a little bit for buying a few cables or whatever here and there, but it's not a money-making exercise <laughs> by any means. So if you've been listening to 20 or 30 episodes and you're not a patron, Go onto the website, click on the patron link, become a donor, and then about once every five months, I'll probably read your name out and thank you profusely, as I'm about to do now. Thank you, <laughs> and starting from the most recent to the most long-standing patrons. Good on you, Tom the Warehouse Guy, Rico, Greg P, Shannon Legg, Liam Healy, Don Tovey, Daniel Flanagan, Sue Cripp, James Leanne, Branwen, Wayne, David Hanby, Virgil, Craig Ball, Shane Ingram, Yam Yam Blue, Zambuck, David Coatley, Graham Hannigan, yet another Pinker fan, John in Dire Straits, who's in the chat room, Tony Darko, who I had lunch with today, Camille, Tom Doolan, Paul Waybar, Alexander Allen, Clinton Riggs, Matthew, Craig S, Glenn Bell, Professor Dr. Dentist, Adam Priest, Melinda, Murray Waver, Andy Dowling, Captain Doomsday, Peter Gillespie, Gavin S, Harry Watson, Daniel Curtin, Liam McMahon, Dominic DeMassey, Matic Man, Palais, Bronwyn, Kane, Jimmy Spud, Tony Wall, Steve Shinners, Allison, James Conti, Yame, Wayno, Craig Gladsby, Janelle, and the one, the only, the all time, Sean, good on you, Sean. And also, who, people who prefer to pay during sort of with PayPal would be Mr. Anderson, Matt Paul Evans, Wayne Seaman, Anne Reed, Gerard Terry, Obrad Puscarica, Darren Geddens. Watley, good on you, Watley. He's in the chat room as well. Greg Clark. Dave S. from Cairns was very generous with some donations. Thank you, Dave. And Kath as well. So thank you to all of those um, sponsors. Much appreciated. And if you want to chat to me at any time, sing out and make contact. Happy to do so. So, And I'll get to you again in another few months. So thank you very much for your contributions. Right. Okay. Now, next topic is, what are we up to in terms of time, 8.26? Let's, let's do a little bit on Afghanistan. So let's thoughts on, as you look at it, Shay, and you see the images of the airlift and all the rest of it, what impressions do you have of the whole thing? Do you think this is a fiasco and Joe Biden's insane and they should be staying there or do you have an opinion about it at all? Does it strike you 
one way or another? Well, I did a semi-related piece of assessment at uni, so I'm studying a degree in justice, and the assignment task was to come up with a policy solution for holding our soldiers to account for their war crimes. Mm. And uh, when I got that assignment, I was like, shit. (laughs) But luckily, the fellow downstairs is ex-army, so I asked him if I could come over for a beer and pick his brain about what they already have in place, what types of things they have. And he was like, yeah, sure, as long as I don't end up being lawyer. But shout out to Tim if you're listening. (laughs) So he basically said to me that he finds it highly suspicious that the Beriton report came out and basically cleared all the top headquarters staff of any knowledge and yep. that it's much the same whether it was Joe Biden, Donald Trump, the Taliban, they have been negotiating this exit for months. They have known it's happening for months, that they didn't put any structures in to start evacuating people sooner, frankly, is just garbage. They knew, well, and, and- they've known for months and they they opted out. So the, the, the Republicans took it down, Trump proudly announcing his exactly. uh, agreement with the Taliban. The Republicans took off their website the day after the evacuation so that they could right. point the fingers at Biden. Mm. But it was Trump who negotiated the ceasefire. It was Trump who negotiated the withdrawal. Yes. Yes. Yep. And just so, no structures in place, and that's regardless of whether it's Australian or American, we're both kind of, I don't know, shrugged our shoulders. And it's, yeah, I, when I yep. saw that footage, I, like, cried because it's so yep. heartbreaking. Mm. So the Republicans would say, well, it's a shoddy exit. It could have been done much better than this. And I guess Biden would say, well, the military told me it wasn't going to happen over the weekend like it did. We thought we had a few months. At the end of the day, I don't think there's ever a pretty exit from that situation. It's not like you're retreating over the border. You're just retreating to the capital city and it was always going to be an airlift of sorts. So it's interesting that, you know, the Taliban basically have allowed 100,000 people to leave Mm. by aeroplane. Like they actually facilitated it and they worked together with the USA in terms of allowing people into the airport to escape. Quite extraordinary, really. Mm. Think about it. So they didn't shoot down any of the planes and I think about 100,000 people have been evacuated. So, And then, you know, the only incident besides just general chaos was the suicide bomber Mm. and that was Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Uh, no, ISIS, sorry. So, yeah. And they've blown a couple uh, of ISIS people up in airstrikes yeah. since then. S- sworn enemies of the Taliban and the USA. So <laughs> you're doing well when you're the enemy of the Taliban and the USA. That's right. When even the Taliban can't stomach you. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah. But, but I don't know. I just think it's quite an extraordinary thing that, that they basically stood back and even assisted the exit of 100,000 people. I, I heard a quote from a woman who was saying, an Afghan woman, who was saying, that, you know, the US were propping up warlords who were just as bad as the Taliban. So effectively, there were three people sub- subjugating Afghan women. It was the US Army, it was the Taliban, and it was the local warlords. And now that the Americans are gone, there's only two of them subjugating. Yes. So th- there's slightly more hope. Yes. Yeah, it's just one one of the troublemakers out of the scene. So. Yeah. Which, which all comes back to this thing that these people have to 
have to go through the process of changing the society themselves. You just can't impose these things from outside and expect to get acceptance. These people have to be allowed to do it their own way. And so I was listening to some stuff today, basically talk, I think it was uh, Late Night Live, basically making the point that the Taliban, say what you like about the Taliban, but they at least are very anti-corruption and they will enforce a legal system of sorts. Now, it's going to be Sharia law, but at least people could actually get some things enforced and they're very hard on corruption. So they actually have some things going for them that would appeal to people. You could understand some people would go, this place has been chaotic. At least I can get some things done with the Taliban in place. The Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt was very much the same. There, There was lots of corruption And the Muslim Brotherhood came in and said, we will stamp out corruption. We will provide food to the sick, the poor, you know, but you have to accept Allah. Yes. And so for a lot of people, it was a trade-off they were willing to pay. Yes. Yeah. So are you optimistic? Oh, it's going to be a disaster for for years. (laughs) And they'll be... I wouldn't want to be there. I wouldn't want any. No. It, it, it's going to be very hard, but it's mm-hmm. it's always been hard. Well, that's mm. what happens when multinationals, well, when when empires keep invading you all the time, you know, the, the USA is just the most recent in a long line. The coalition know, of the drilling. Yes. Russia before that, Mongols before that. Like they just keep coming oh, through. British before whacking that. over the head. Yes. So if, you know, they really need a chance to do it from within and do it themselves in order to change, just imposing it from the outside and expecting these people to swallow it, whatever's imposed on them, just isn't going to work. So I listened to a uh, British uh, army interpreter who worked, served out there. And, and he said, we, we assume that it's us versus the Taliban. And he said, it isn't. It's, mm. it's intertribal. It's, it's family-level conflicts that mm. have been going on for thousands of years. And the foreigners coming in are just seen as easy sources of cash and weapons to carry on these tribal conflicts. And until yep. they sort out their tribal conflicts, it's going to make no difference. Yep. And, you know, if if the Taliban sort out the corruption issue, that's one of the biggest issues that they need to get a grip of in that country. So once you've sorted the corruption out to some extent, then you can start working on other things. But if, you, if you're just a corrupt society, then you, you can't really work on anything. So, so look, getting the Americans out, let, if, if people just let them alone long enough then who knows what could happen. But it's never going to happen with outsiders imposing their view. So um, let me quote some stuff here. This is from the John Menadue blog. The first general lesson for Australia as an ally of the US is to recognise that many Americans are congenitally unable to comprehend their adversaries or to accord them full agency. They cannot accept that other nations won't simply be prepared to abandon their own history and culture and the norms and institutions that have given rise to they have given rise to for an american style democratic capitalist model americans as a group don't seem to understand that when forced to jettison their traditional institutions administration and governance practices 
for Western models, there will be resistance and backlash and enormous opportunities for corruption and incompetence. It's exactly right. They just think, oh, if we show these people wonderful Western liberal democracy, they'll just jump at it and it'll all be over. And it's just not how it works. They just don't get it. So It's called serfdom. Right, yes. American democracy. Yes. So actually next week I think I might do a book review on the shock doctrine, I think, because people look at the third world, if you like, or developing countries and, and, and they see them as corrupt and see them as just not adopting the wonderful Western liberal democratic system. If only they would do it, then they would be just like us. And A, these people are just never allowed to. There's these impositions put on them, whether militarily by the US invading them or financially by the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank just constraining what they do, where they're not allowed to develop technologies because the US and others have these sort of copyrights in place and patents that never allow them to develop technologies. So they're just left to grow bananas and dig up rocks out of the soil and they can't do the value-added things that Western countries can do. So they're sort of behind the eight ball. Anyway, I think that might be next week. So there's a lot of criticism of Joe Biden, but I think full credit to him. He decided, no, (coughs) we're out of here. And there would have been a lot of generals saying, oh, another six months, another 12 months. And he said, no, we're we're out of here. There and was actually an agreement with the Taliban that they would be out by August, whatever it was. Hmm. Because September 11, wasn't it? No, no, I think it was a August date because they were saying, you've, you've made this deal and if you're not out by this date, there will be repercussions. Hmm. Right, yep. So, so the date was imposed on him by an agreement that he hadn't been party to. Right. Yep. Yeah. So so that's that. And just in terms of our involvement in uh, Vietnam, again, the Essential Report came out with, with a poll of Australians. So how strongly do you agree or disagree with the following statements about Australia's involvement in the 20-year conflict in Afghanistan? Was the one that got me was... The deployment of Australian troops in Afghanistan has benefited Afghanistan and its inhabitants. 42% of Australians agree with that and only 22% disagree. 42% say the deployment of Australian troops has benefited Afghanistan and its inhabitants. I'm seething because for my assignment I had to I had to look for or sort of give some sort of substantiate that what appetite the electorate had for holding Afghan soldiers to account. Right. I couldn't find anything, but I could have, might have, made have been, been able to make that work. So, damn. Yeah. It only came out today, showing. All so, right. Okay. So, you're okay. <laughs> Central report only came out today. So, yeah, 42% of Australians think the deployment of Australian troops in Afghanistan mm. has benefited Afghanistan and its inhabitants. Like, it's not like that was going great. And, uh, like, they're back to square one, the starters. Worse than square one, arguably. And, you know, Taliban's back in charge. And it it wasn't a great 20 years anyway. There's a big disparity between the urban and the the regional areas. Oh, 
I'm quite shocked that so many Australians think so positively about our involvement there. Mm. I am surprised by that. So well, let me see. So that's Afghanistan, I think. Anybody got anything else they want to add about Afghanistan before I move on? No. No, I don't think so. Unless you want to hear I, my policy solution. <laughs> what? Yeah, well, this is your policy as to justice in terms of dealing with war crimes by Australian troops. Yes. And what was your policy? Well, what is your policy solution? I do want to hear that. So my policy solution was clutching at straws, but there's an international criminal court. So mm-hmm. I made the case that the government repeals laws that they brought in where they basically, Australia is in principle aligned with an international criminal court, but we have laws to say that we'll basically deal with anything. John Howard brought in laws that says we're going to deal with anything in-house. US, US so, do the same. Exactly, right? So yeah. I, I made an argument that we could repeal that law, that we could have our soldiers go off to the international criminal court where where on the grounds that they would get an impartial hearing because the Bereton report doesn't strike me as impartial. Right. Yes. Even though so, there's no electoral appetite for that at all. <laughs> so you had the crazy <laughs> idea that Australian troops could just comply with international law. Yeah. <laughs> or at least be it. at least be put because I just don't think they'll be found guilty, even the way the Bereton port was collected. They are mm. soldiers without actually saying to the soldiers like what might be at stake that these right. matters could be put forward. So I, I think most of the evidence is what do you call it? Inadmissible. Right. So it would be basically a way to look good and get a fair trial, possibly get a really good outcome for everybody. Right. Yep. And and, and for those soldiers, for the soldiers who yep. spoke up and said yep. this actually isn't okay. Yeah. These things happened because that they lost their livelihoods, they lost their careers, they've had battles with their mental health as a result yep. of being a snitch. One of the SAS troops who spoke up had explosives outside of her house. So, you know, there is a case to make even though even though Australians probably don't have an appetite for for doing it, still could be the right thing to do. Yeah. That was my policy solution. Okay. Sounds fair enough. I have just this one concern where I think of soldiers, 18, 19, 20, thrown into these conflicts which are not like the Second World War where, you know, you're, it's this guerrilla warfare. It's this you're in amongst where you you don't know friend or foe. They all look the same. It would be a very stressful situation for soldiers in a Vietnam, Afghanistan-type role where, you know, you, you, you take a hill and in Vietnam, for example, and then you're back there the next week taking the same hill and and you, you're going through a village and you don't know whether the Viet Cong are in here or not. You don't know whether these are the people you're trying to protect or the people are going to try and kill you. The same in Afghanistan. You just don't know. I just have a lot of sympathy for the stress that would be on mm. uh, young men in that situation who might then do something really bad and pay a big price for, but they're put in a terribly difficult situation. There is a huge difference between an enlisted soldier and an SAS trooper. 
The SAS mm-hmm. troopers are trained to within an inch of their lives. None of them are 17, 18, 19. Yeah, they've all got years of service behind them. It, it's, it's not that this is a one-off, that this is a snap thing. This speaks to a culture of entitlement that comes from the top all the way down. Even if it's not condoned, it's certainly not stamped out. And, yeah, and so, so we're putting... But still, you've got guys put into that culture. It's a very, you know, loyalty to the brotherhood type culture. I, I agree. Everyone's doing it. And the and, change has to come from the top. And, I, yeah, I just have some sympathy for... It wouldn't be easy at times to say, no, I'm not doing that now. When... Mm. It's all very easy back here to say that. Um, I, 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 well, not, yeah. so, so Mi Lai mm. was stopped by a helicopter pilot who pulled pistol out and yep. threatened to shoot American soldiers yes. who were in the middle of a massacre. Indeed. Um, and that was extraordinary. That was it, extraordinary. Would you have done that? I don't know. I, until you're in the situation, how can you honestly say? Mm. Well, well, the fact that we find it would. so extraordinary makes it think that we probably wouldn't have. Mm. And um, and if he had turned his back and walked away, is he as guilty of a war crime for having allowed it to? It, it's just. He, he was I an just, officer. Yes. Yeah. Um, mm. yeah, as as an airman, he would have been an officer. Mm. So, yeah, in fact, he would have been more than complicit as the senior mm. or one of the senior officers on site mm. to, to allow that to carry on. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'm just. I agree. It's a good idea that they should be subject to international law and adjudication and by independent body. That's good. Part of the case mm. was is that perhaps with that level of impartiality, they might be able to give us some more dirt on more people up the chain. Like, yes, yeah, because I, I, tr- my ideal solution was to hold the big, the big boys, you know, like John Howard, to account. Yep. But I had to yep. be able to find a policy solution that had been used somewhere else in the world. So as far as I could tell, we hadn't ever successfully tried a prime minister for right. more crimes yes. that they yes. didn't technically commit but had directed to. So anyway, that Paul would say that's left woke gone crazy anyway. <laughs> but I, I remember the opposite with the SAS shooting IRA members in Gibraltar. Right. And, and the outcry in the British press that these these poor IRA members had been shot dead and hadn't been arrested and allowed to face court. Right. And, and the point was they were planning to set off a bomb in the middle of a tourist. It was a military parade in front of tourists. So they yep. were going to they were going to kill hundreds of tourists. Mm. Yep. And they were shot dead by the SAS, whether it was justified or not. Certainly this wasn't innocent villagers that the soldiers didn't know right or wrong. These were criminals who were in the process of a crime, of a terrorist Mm. atrocity. Mm. So I don't know that the military is always given a free pass. No. Comparing what has gone on here Mm. with the accountability that has been held in other places. Again, yeah. with SAS. Mm. Mm. I, I, I think maybe it needs a, 
a whistleblowing service, somebody who mm. you can anonymously contact. Yeah, well, me and the my next door neighbor did discuss that that the army doesn't have a you know HR department for national security reasons and that type of thing. And certainly, like at Qantas and in my experience, in a in a range of things where I've basically had to deviate from procedure or had to make a complaint, having that separate structure. Like Qantas security, like a HR department, like my chain of command, I have a whole range of accessible places that I can go to report something and then I've got a whole range of going somewhere else if I'm not satisfied with the outcome and it seems like the Army doesn't have that. So if you're being bullied by your commanding officer, you go to his commanding officer and that's it, right? And that actually doesn't work all of the time. Yep. Yeah. So was one of your recommendations a HR department for the No, I just stuck with International Criminal Court. I just stuck to one thing. I wanted to do HR, but I, again, I couldn't find any other military service that also offers a HR department in the Mm. world. Mm. But but is there, you know, obviously there was the TV show JAG. Is there a effectively... That's before my time. (laughs) A military police service... (laughs) that is responsible for the behaviour of soldiers. Yeah, but that's about prosecuting them mm. after they've breached some military rules. Yeah, yeah. Or it, it's just like a private police force for dealing with military personnel, it, isn't it? Yeah. There definitely yeah. there definitely would be someone somewhere. But I just couldn't yeah, find yeah. yeah. Find it in time. All right. Well, I'm going to leave my social contract talk for another time, I think. Mm-hmm. That'll be next next week, I think. Oh, well, next week it'll just be me and somebody or a book review or something like that. So we will come back as a panel in two weeks' time. In the chat room, thank you. Lots of comments there. You guys chat away amongst yourselves about all sorts of things. It's hard to keep <laughs> yeah. track of what you're actually because you're referring to what other people have said. Good on you. Watley's been busy in there. Been very busy, Watley. So May I make a request? Of the audience, I finally got the courage to listen back to my previous episodes and got used to my voice and I actually don't see that I'm improving. So what I thought about might be worthwhile is I would love it if an audience member might be able to give some of their time to just riff with me prior to a show. So if any of you are interested in that, could you please pass your contact details on to Trevor and say, yes, I'd be willing to talk to Shay to just like nut out some of the issues. And it would be good if you were someone that's really cutthroat and down the line. (laughs) (laughs) Just like don't care about my feelings, just like to say, what's your point? What's your view? You haven't done this or you haven't done that. And and I'll be able to just like develop myself much more quickly like, that way. Like so anyway, if anybody. Say and that sort of thing. Hey. Yes. Yeah. I think that was, that's a different thing. Yes. I, I heard you. But anyway. Go, okay. Yeah. Well, I just thought I'd throw it out there. If, if anybody's, I don't know, got some spare time, that would be really useful to me. And I'd really appreciate that. So just there pass your details on to Trevor and I'll take it from there. Go to the website, hit the contact link and send us a note and I'll pass you on to Shay and you can riff away and practice uh, about all that <laughs> yeah. sort of stuff. So so that's all good. Yeah, I don't think I can go too much further. I'll spend too much time back in those messages, but 
Good on you for everyone who was in there and chatting away amongst yourselves. Much appreciated. Yeah, if you see any articles or... Uh, oh, thanks, John. Stuff? Perfect. Yeah, John will talk to you. Yeah. Actually, I do have John's details. I can give that to you. So, all right. Well, a bit of wind up. Thank you for your attention and your uh, listening. Thank you to the patrons as well. That's much appreciated. And we'll talk as a panel in two weeks' time, but I'll be back. Maybe an interview, maybe a book review. Not sure next week about something but until then bye for now goodbye thanks for tonight and it's a good night from him uh, and it's it's still incurring expenses i presume that's correct and how many people have been detained there since it was reactivated i currently have four people uh, have there ever since the reactivation have there ever been any other detainees there no senator no so we spent in the region of $30 million to detain four people for a couple of months.